Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Doing very well. Today on the show, our guest is Lindsay Burke. She is the Democratic candidate for the 75th House District in Lexington. She doesn't have a Republican opponent, so she's most likely headed to Frankfurt. The current representative in the 75th is Kelly Flood, but just like with the 36th in Louisville, uh, where Mary Lou Marzian uh, has been the person who's been representing that for a long time, um, Kelly Flood is stepping aside uh, and and letting somebody new uh, take over, and that is Lindsey Burke in Lexington. So we talked to her a lot just about the issues she's passionate about. She's really passionate about housing. Um, She's really passionate about education, a bunch of other stuff that we talked to her about. So we talked about that. We talked about her approach to legislating, a lot of the stuff we normally talk about, but very good answers, really unique perspective. I really like Lindsey Burke. I think she's going to be doing some great stuff next year in Frankfurt. What did you think, Jasmine? Yeah, I thought it was a really good interview. She, I mean, she really has like a good plan and, and she seems to know a lot about housing and she's passionate about that. And we were just talking to her and we talked about how we think that's something that's needed in Frankfurt. So I'm excited to see what she'll do. Yeah, it's, of course, a huge, huge issue uh, across the state, but especially in our urban areas. Uh, and yeah, having having additional leadership on that is definitely not going to hurt anything. But today on the show, we're going to talk about a couple of big issues. The first one is Jasmine's going to talk to us about several different JCPS issues. There's a new contract with the teachers. There's a new student assignment plan, and they filed a lawsuit. So three big JCPS stories. That's going to take up most of the show. I have a few hit, uh, quick hits, just some stuff that, that are following up on some stories that we've been following. And some new stuff that maybe doesn't rise to the uh, need to have its own segment. But we'll get to those at the end. So, Jasmine, tell us everything we need to know about JCPS this week. Okay, there's a lot. So we have three big stories here. The first one that we're going to talk about are raises. So the state failed to give teachers raises in their two-year budget. All other state employees got them. But the JCPS teachers are getting raises. So educators will get 4% raises across the board along with their normal step increases. um, And then also a $1,000 one-time stipend. In addition, teachers at accelerated improvement schools and schools in the choice zone, which are schools in the West End, In the new student assignment plan, they will get an additional $8,000 each year, and that will increase each year until it's capped at $14,000. So there is some additional money um, for AIS schools and choice zone schools. These raises are the largest percentage raise in 15 years. You know, it's not the 8% raises that other state workers got, um, but They'll get 4% raises along with additional step-ups and a stipend. And there's additional money for for working in some of these choice zone schools and AIS schools. So very good news for JCPS teachers who have had a really rough two or three school years, I would say. And they're also facing major staffing shortages. And so this is much needed, I think. Yeah, it's worth mentioning that our inflation rate is like running at about 8%. So uh, it's like tough to stay above water in that type of environment. But uh, it it is good to get these raises. They have been hard fought and the union has been working really, really hard for a long time to get a raise like this. It is, you know, the biggest raise in 15 years, no matter what the inflation rate is, nothing to shake a stick at. Uh, That's really good. And also just, um, you know, the ability of finally to get some 
To get a higher level of pay at some of these accelerated improvement schools is, is definitely something I think is going to help add some equity into the school system that's desperately needed. So mm-hmm. um, that, that I think, is it's good news. Um, but, but I do think it, it needs to be said that the, these raises should be higher. Um, this school district is tapped, right? They don't have the funding to do that, and the, the state government isn't giving them more, and they don't have the ability to really raise that amount of money. So even though they do deserve more and they need raises that match inflation and go above it to get it so that it's a higher paid or, you know, occupation – that's not really possible uh, without the help of the state government. And hopefully, hopefully at some point in the near future, that will be forthcoming. But but not this year. Yeah. And a state government that has uh, been kind of antagonistic to teachers at times. Especially at <laughs> JCPS. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> um, the next story is the JCPS school board also passed a plan to overhaul the student assignment plan. Robert talked about the new proposal in a previous episode where he really went in depth about how it's going to work. But this plan has been in the works for almost five years now. It it kind of started after JCPS reached a settlement um, with, remember, Education Commissioner Wayne Lewis I certainly do. I was trying to think of his name and I'm glad you got it. I was like, it starts with a W, but it's Wayne Lewis. That's right. That guy. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't look that up, but I remembered. Um, So they reached a settlement to avoid state takeover um, back in 20. This started in 2017. I I think the settlement was reached in 2018. And part of that was that they would take a look at the student assignment plan. Um, So they've been working on this for a long time and it passed by a unanimous vote. Yeah, that's a big deal, I think, because, uh, you know, the the changes to the student assignment plan are substantial and you're going to get into them in a second here. But uh, there was, I mean... getting everybody on the same page to agree to something like this when the the school board members come from such all over the city and have different kind of thoughts about how Mm -hmm. education should work getting a a plan that was approved by everybody was a you know a stated goal of the superintendent marty polio uh, and one that he was actually able to achieve so that's that's pretty impressive so essentially students in the west end who have been bused to faraway schools for diversity purposes will now have a choice to opt to go to their neighborhood school, but then they'll also have a second reside school. Like there will be clusters for other reside schools that are likely further away, but um, are like higher, high achieving schools. They'll have dual reside schools, basically. Magnet schools will also see changes under the plan. Um, They'll have diversity goals that they'll try to meet. And they also will no longer be able to exit students. Um, And then lotteries will be centrally controlled by the central office instead of school controlled. So that will hopefully improve equity in some of the magnets. At least maybe uh, reduce the conspiracy theories about uh, the schools uh, putting their thumb on the scale for some of the lotteries, which are rumors that go around every year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, th- this is, you know, we talked about this, but, you know, the, the dual resides are necessarily going to make schools more segregated. But uh, yeah, they it it will. Yeah. And but but the thing is, like, we have to find a way to balance the fact that we are busing black children 
from you know far away to to schools in the east end and and our like the integration of our schools is done on the backs of the black children that live in the west end um Mm -hmm. and this is trying to to strike some kind of balance and and like we mentioned you know it's it's pretty impressive that they were able to get so many people on board with this plan understanding that we're trying to do something um that that balances all of the competing kind of needs that we have uh and, and but it will only time will tell what what actually happens inside of these schools yeah, and and while the old plan integrated the schools, I I think it it's worse for, you know, the achievement gap for black students. At least, you know, just in my practice as a juvenile attorney, I I saw so many children with truancy charges due to missing their bus or not having transportation. And then they they couldn't there was no way to get to school. And so they missed a lot of days. And if if they're able to go have the choice to go to a neighborhood school, you know, maybe they can walk or ride a bike. And finding that balance has been the really tough part. And this is what. Yeah. As we've come up with as a kid who voluntarily picked to ride a bus at 630 in the morning, I can tell you that was not easy or fun. Uh, Yeah. So, yeah, not not a great not a great time for anybody. The NAACP in Louisville and then also a group of retired black educators gave their conditional support for the plan before the board voted last week. So they expressed concerns that the plan will resegregate schools, but knowing it was likely going to pass, um, you know, their goal was to try to work to improve the plan. And so Um, Some things that were added, schools in the choice zone will receive more funding. They'll also be able to hire first uh, before other schools. And a lot of them will get facility upgrades to like athletic facilities and things like that. They'll also have academic goals and their progress will be tracked. Um, You know, I think data and, and tracking things like this will be really beneficial to make sure that this new plan isn't worse or, you know, maybe it starts out being better, but we see other issues later on, which I think is, is what happened with the busing plan. You know, it, it was a good idea at the time, but now years later, we needed to make changes to it. So I think tracking progress um, is going to be really important. And then they also added a second school, that will be similar to the Lincoln Performing Arts School. And Polio has promised that this school will be built in the West End. Yeah, for the people that don't know, the Lincoln Performing Arts School is a, it's in the Nulu area of Louisville. It's been there. It predated Nulu. So it was there um, whenever I was a kid. Uh, it wasn't a performing arts school, but I almost ended up going there. Um, that would have been the school I would have been bused to at the time when that was um, you know, still a thing that we were doing um, with white children going to schools further downtown. Um, and but nowadays it's a it's a performing arts magnet. They get kids uh, to to have a uh, you know an ability to be exposed and and to participate in all kinds of like visual arts, performing arts, a lot of cool stuff uh, for elementary school age children, um, including like access to the probably the best black box theater in like the whole city of Louisville. Mm-hmm. Like there's one in the 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 Kentucky Performing Arts Center, but actually the one at Lincoln Performing Arts Center is where they do a lot of like the Humana Festival and stuff that goes into a black box. They'll actually prefer to do it at Lincoln <laughs> than the Kentucky Center. So yeah. that's 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 what Lincoln Performing Arts School is. My high school got a black box theater the year after I graduated and 
I was very as a as a theater kid, I was very jealous of yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I went to the youth performing arts school, uh, which is attached to Manual, and and I think that our black box theater was literally just like a big room that they just painted black. There wasn't like anything cool with like the lights or anything like they have at El Pass. Yeah, that is the student assignment plan, and so Robert. Uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit, but now that we have the final plan, you know, what do you think? Do you think this is the best move? It's going to be hard to say. Like, I think, yeah. you know, and, and this is the thing I give Marty Polio a lot of credit for is like in the past, it's like we have these big problems, but facing them or doing anything about them is going to be really hard. And is it going to be worse than the status quo? We don't know, but we really don't want to risk it. And Marty Polio has really taken on these problems and said, we can do better. You know, we are going to be able to do something better than this. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe it won't work, but I think that his, you know, his kind of popularity and his, uh, you know, ability to t- kind of attract people and, and, and bring them along with his his message means that he'll be able to pivot. He'll be able to make adjustments as needed. And, and I think that there kind of needs to be some action taken has for a long time uh, a lot of fear has kept us from doing it in the past and and i'm really glad that something is going on is it going to solve all the problems definitely not is it going to be better than the status quo yet to be seen but i think that you know we're on the road of actually starting some action and that's better than what we have right now i do think that no matter what we're going to be better in the future because even if this plan does um create some new problems we are being nimble and we are actually trying to face our issues so hopefully Mm -hmm. um you know you know, the future uh, is is better than the present. Yeah. And I think that the school board was very careful about this. They they really listened to to other people, to the NAACP and the group of retired black educators and implemented some of their suggestions for the plan. And I think they, along with Marty Polio, really care about doing this right and making sure it works and, you know, make changes as needed. So I think that change was necessary and I think we're on the right track. All right. We have one more JCPS story. On Monday, the JCPS school board announced it was filing a lawsuit against Jason Glass, who is the education commissioner that was filed in Jefferson Circuit Court, and they are suing to block parts of Senate Bill 1. Isn't it always funny how you end up suing, like, somebody who's, like, kind of an ally? Like, Jason Glass is not, like, a bad guy, but he's the person whose name's going to go on the lawsuit because he's the education commissioner. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is It is kind of strange sometimes who, who your defendant is in, in suits like this. But Senate Bill 1 is the education bill that shifts authority from the school board to the superintendent and places other limits on the board for JCPS. So the superintendent would have power over day-to-day operations and implementation of the board approved strategic plan. And that includes things like transportation, personnel matters, the organizational structure of administrative staff contracts um, that would give that power to the superintendent. The board could override the superintendent's decisions, but it would require a two-thirds vote instead of just a majority. The bill also limits meetings, school board meetings, to once every four weeks. Um, And then it uses the language for a county with a consolidated local government that only applies to Jefferson County. So this bill targets JCPS, or parts of it do at least. 
So the board is arguing that the law violates the Kentucky Constitution and unfairly targets Jefferson County. So um, the two provisions here, Kentucky Constitution Section 59 says the General Assembly cannot pass special or local acts um, concerning the following things. And one of those things is to provide for the management of common schools. Um, And then there's also a provision that says in all other cases where a general law can be made applicable, no special law can be enacted. And they say that parts of Senate Bill 1 violate this section of the Constitution. Seems pretty up and down on that one to me, but we'll see. Yeah. And, you know, I think it depends on, you know, how the Supreme Court has interpreted providing for the management of common schools. Um, And then they also cite section 60, which says the general assembly shall not indirectly enact any special or local act by the repeal of part of a general act or by exempting from the operation of a general act, any city, town, district, or county, but laws repealing local or special acts may be enacted. So this section prohibits targeting a specific city town district or county (laughs) it seems like that these these parts of the kentucky constitution are going to grow in their importance in this like era of rural versus urban um Mm -hmm. situations where we're we are seeing a lot of like laws <laughs> uh, that are specifically targeting Louisville or Louisville institutions. I mean, like even changing the way that the merger worked a long time ago, the way that they wrote that was like, okay, well, we're going to give like cities who are this size the capability to merge like this. And so there are still like 15 cities or something that could fe- feasibly merge with their county governments, even though the law was for Louisville. Um, yeah. And in these specific bills, like they're targeting Louisville explicitly. And it will be interesting to see the way that the bill like uses the language for a county with a consolidated local government, knowing that that is just Louisville right now. Mm-hmm. But in the future, if if a different county, you know, enacted that sort of merger, they would they would be able to, you know, that this law would apply to them, too. So that that will be interesting to see to see how that all that goes. This SB1 thing, we talked about it a lot during the session, but nobody wanted it. Like, it expands the power of Marty Polo and the superintendent pretty substantially. But Marty Polio was even like, I don't want you to do this. This is not good. This is not something I support. Uh, And they they did it anyway, even even though he asked them not to. Um, So it's just, I don't know. There were, they really had no allies in Louisville in elected positions or really in a positions of authority who were supporting this, um, and yet they did it anyway. This bill also included the, uh, you know, the Ronald Reagan required CRT piece with the uh, all the things they had to read. So if they do overthrow or if they throw out SB one, it'll be interesting to see if they like sever that portion and and or if Is that it all part of it. Was that part of SB1? Yeah, it got moved into SB1 at the very end uh, because they didn't want to support the bill. And that's, remember, they had to make that like little, they they had to make that fix because they included that part of the bill in SB1. And then they had to go, and because they left like the the criminal. Yeah. 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 That was a weird, a weird moment. Uh, There's a lot of stuff going on. So I don't blame you for not remembering. But yeah, we'll see. Maybe all of it will get thrown out. (laughs) We'll see. What, so what do you think, Jasmine? I mean, as uh, the lawyer on the show, do you feel like that they have a good case here? Or do you feel like the way that they wrote the bill is is good enough to escape, uh, you know, sections 59 and 60? I am not super familiar with case law interpreting either of these sections. Um, and I haven't seen the defense response or, or anything like that. So I don't know if there are cases that 
have interpreted language like this or even this specific language before. Um, on its face, those sections of the Constitution would seem to prohibit what they did. Um, but it all depends on how that language hasn't been interpreted, if if there is any case law on it. Um, so honestly, I'm I'm not really sure how this could come down. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see. Yeah. And I don't think there is much case law because I think this like urban rural divide thing is a little bit new. Um, it, it's definitely not new, but it, it's something that is definitely increasing in the way that they're singling out Louisville, especially in the in-state government laws. So, yep, we'll see. We'll see what happens. All right. I've got three quick hits, some of which are bigger than others to talk about. So first of all, during the 2021 session, the legislature passed a law which dealt with how the state would handle the large opioid settlement, um, which came down from several opioid makers and distributors. Local governments got half of the funding, and the attorney general received the authority to appoint members to a board, which would oversee the other half uh, distribution. So this week, Daniel Cameron announced the members of the board that are going to oversee that $240 million that are being distributed. So they include uh, Vic Brown, who's the director of the Appalachian High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area. He's going to represent law enforcement, which was required. All of these are kind of like people who are specifically supposed to represent specific groups. Van Ingram is the executive director for the Kentucky Office of Drug Control Policy, who that person is representing the drug treatment and prevention community. Dr. Jason Roop, who's pastor of Asbury Methodist Church, and he's on faculty at Campbellsville University, and he's going to represent victims of the opioid crisis. Karen Butcher, who's founder of the Kentucky chapter of Parents of Addicted Loved Ones, who's going to represent citizens at large. And Vaughn Purdy, who is the vice president of Simmons College in Kentucky, which is in Louisville. Um, that's, and she, uh, that person is also representing citizens at large. So there's four other members of the commission as well who are not appointed by the attorney general. But I also noticed that Danny Bentley, who is the representative from the 99th district, which is like Greenup County. Um, he is going to be, uh, he is the non-voting member that was appointed. One of the two non-voting members appointed by um, the legislature, uh, the Republicans in the legislature who control those uh, nominations. Um, and he, if you've been following us for a while, he says some weird stuff sometimes and was actually saying some weird stuff about breastfeeding, which uh, is not the only time he's done that this, this week during the interim session. So, so that's, that was the opioid settlement moving on a little bit though okay so the west end opportunity partnership which is also known as the west end tiff we've talked about this quite a bit on the show it was a major issue in one of the state rep races that was going on between pamela stevenson and robert bell we interviewed both of them and talked to them both about it um so anyways this this partnership had a deadline has a deadline of june 30th to hit fundraising goals in order to qualify for 10 million dollars in state funding so, you know, the board as it exists in the WEOP speaks optimistic about being able to hit those targets. They already say they have $7.1 million committed. There was an article this week by Marcus Green of WDRB, and he reports that some of the funding commitments come with some requirements that have yet to be made, like the WEOP re- receiving tax exempt status and having all of the board seats filled. I think it was, he specifically wrote about the, the uh, Brown Foundation, the James, Gra- uh, James Graham Brown Foundation requiring that they have taxes of status, which they do not have yet in their paperwork. Uh, I don't know if it will be in place to get that to get that status before the fundraising deadline. So 
Um, there are some issues because June 30th is less than a month away. So this situation, which is already pretty awkward, could get even more awkward. So, you know, I don't know if the state may, like, extend the deadline or if, you know, the WEOP will be able to get those commitments in place before um, or if just the commitments they already have um, will be good enough for state regulators. Um, so, yeah, definitely something to be tracking because, you know, the reason why uh, the supporters of this bill um, were behind it was because they said it was going to be a lot of money that was going to be plugged directly into the West End. And if the board doesn't qualify to earn the money, um, you know, that kind of all falls apart. So that's that's a problem. So, yeah. Anything any thoughts about the West End Opportunity Partnership this week, Jasmine? No, I I read that article, too, and David James, who's the Metro Council president and also the acting partnership board chair, um, said that he doesn't believe that any of like the already signed agreements will have to be amended, but that they'll have to have conversations about the partnership status. So he seems confident that, that they won't have to, you know, amend those commitments that they already have. So uh, hopefully the they're working through that <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know what he's gonna say oh man looks bad we're not gonna qualify <laughs> well, yeah <laughs> but also it you know in order for them not to get the money somebody's gonna have to challenge them or regulators are gonna have to be like no 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 and whether or not they're actually gonna do that yeah. go forward with that um that's of course another thing and they could just be like well these commitments seem like they're they're strong enough here's the 10 million dollars which i think is likely to be what what happens well we'll see yeah. we'll see all right, Jasmine, a new website popped up on my radar this week. Um, it's promoting all of the Liberty candidates running for office in 2022 and in 2023. Savannah Maddox, who we talked about last week on the show, did declare her candidacy. So she's like front and center. It's like, this is our candidate for governor. But they also have lots and lots of people running for lots of offices. And this is the, kind of the first time I've seen that group, the Liberty people, put together as like an actual slate with real organization. It's like, here are the people that we're supporting. A lot of their candidates in rural areas are likely to win their seats. And the fact that they're acting together kind of means that, you know, there's going to be significant division in the GOP caucus during the legislative session and during the primary season next year. So in addition to a lot of GOP legislative candidates that they're putting forward, the Liberty Caucus is also supporting candidates for Metro Council and judicial races. And they were, at least at some point, supporting a bunch of people running for JCPS school board. Um, but they actually took those candidates off their website. Uh, I don't know really what's <laughs> going on there. Uh, but yeah, Jasmine, yeah, did you... Whenever I heard about this website, it was about the school board candidates. But then when I actually went to it, I didn't see any of those. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, so the, all of the people that they did say that they were supporting did end up filing, which was my original suspicion that they might have had some candidates get cold feet. So they pulled it all down. But they... Uh, that's probably something for another day. But we talked about JCPS enough this week. But there are a lot of candidates for JCPS school board this year yeah. um, from a wide variety of ideologies, including, you know, some JCTA supported incumbents, some people to the right of them who may not be necessarily supported by a JCTA, some folks who are maybe a little bit more radical um, and want to strike, <laughs> want the teachers to strike a lot more. Um, and then also this slate of, uh, of Liberty candidates. Um, so there's going to be a lot of candidates. But yeah, uh, they did all end up filing. So they do have a lot of folks running. But Jasmine, w given like this level of organization of the Liberty Caucus, like wh wh what do you think that means for the future of the Republican Caucus in Kentucky? I don't know. I was thinking about this last week when we talked about all the Liberty candidates running and some that defeated 
incumbents and I wonder, you know, what happens to the moderate Republicans in Frankfurt? You know, do they start to move even further right because of this liberty wing of the caucus and them getting organized and having growing support? It At least that's what it seems like. They're running more and more of these candidates and some of them are winning. Um, so does that move the moderate Republicans, do they stop sponsoring, you know, medical marijuana bills or sports gambling bills and things like that? And so that's what I'm a little bit concerned about happening, that the the, the whole party shifts further right um, instead of, you know, there, there could be, there will likely be division, um, but eventually do other Republicans start to get worried about their own seats and and start to move that direction. Yeah, I kind of feel like the the traditional Republican or moderate Republican lane is definitely still the one that's the most full. Um, and the people that give them money and kind of the, the places where they recruit those candidates out of are like Chamber of Commerce type places and, you know, uh, the kind of just like business oriented Republicans. And that's that's who kind of funds their campaigns and, and, and keeps them moving and where all their campaign staff are and, and kind of the ideology of all their staff and stuff. So, you know, they have to kind of I think that it, it definitely stands to reason that they will move to the right, especially on issues that they don't really care about. Um, but it will be interesting to see how um, all of this stuff works. I think it really increases the stakes, right? Because if you have like a Liberty caucus that has a lot of power and the Republicans can either choose to like go and get Democratic votes to pass the, you know, the bill as they want to write it, and maybe moderate it to the left a little bit. They have that option or they can moderate mm -hmm. to the right. Or, or move the bill to the right uh, a little bit further and grab the Liberty Caucus. So they kind of have those two options, um, which gives, you know, Democrats and Liberty uh, folks more power to actually enact some policies um, because, you know, they're going to peel off some of these votes in some kind of way, um, but also makes the opportunity to have a lot worse bills uh, come forward. So, so you know, it's it's going to be it's going to be really interesting. Um, I think we're, we're kind of entering into a new phase. Yeah, I on this website, what I thought was really interesting were they also have a slate for judicial races, which yeah. are nonpartisan, and some of the people they chose made made sense to me because they're very prosecutorial, um, and so they're they're kind of running as like more like law enforcement type candidates, but. Some of them, like, I, I honestly don't know, like, what that candidate did or said <laughs> to end up on the Liberty Caucus slate. Like, I really don't. Yeah. So yeah. that was really interesting to me. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and just one last thought about this kind of issue is, like, people who've been watching Kentucky politics for a long time will recognize this dynamic in the majority party because really for the last, like, 15 or 20 years of the Democratic majority in the House, the Democrats face, like, a very similar sort of situation where you had these, like, conservative Democrats who who really did have the opportunity to, like, go to the Republican Party to try to get more votes for an issue or to go towards more liberal Democrats 
who are always like kind of a minority in the, the Democratic Party uh, to get uh, to get them. So so there this dynamic is not one that's unusual. And I feel like as you have caucuses that grow to this size, it's kind of inevitable. And and the Democratic caucus was often I don't know if it was ever 75 members, but it was it was often like in the 60s and high 60s. So, you know, um, not a dynamic that's unusual to Kentucky politics, but maybe the first time that the Republicans have had to face it. So anyways, that's where we're at with that. All right, Jasmine, uh, let's get to our interview with Lindsey Burke. Lindsey Burke is the Democratic candidate for the 75th House District in Lexington. She has a background in social work and worked with the Central Kentucky Housing and Homelessness Coalition, a group that has paved the way for Lexington's Affordable Housing Trust Fund. She became a lawyer and founded Micah Legal, a sliding scale nonprofit law firm in Lexington. The 75th includes much of the heart of Lexington, including the areas south of Main Street and then west of Limestone slash Nicholasville Road within New Circle Road. Lindsay Burke faces no Republican in the fall, so she's almost certainly headed to Frankfurt. So, Lindsay Burke, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Thanks so much, Jasmine and Robert. I'm thrilled to be with you this afternoon. Yeah, well, we're very glad that you could join us. Uh, it, you're the you're the last person on our tour of Lexington, so it's always it's good to catch up with our former home where we met. So uh, that's always very cool. So, all right, let's start where we always start with all candidates, which is kind of your motivation for running. So, you know, we've talked to every candidate so far this year about the really difficult headwinds that are facing Democrats in, in Frankfurt right now. It's it's really difficult to get. <laughs> anything accomplished it's really hard to to stop bad things from happening so you know we've heard some inspiring reasons uh, for people to stay involved in politics and and we're interested in hearing your answer as well why have you decided to throw yourself into public service as a democrat now in 2022 well that's a great question and it makes sense why you ask everyone uh for me the simple reason that i've thrown myself into politics can be just boiled down to one word and that's service my career, first as a social worker and then an attorney for people with low incomes, has been all about serving my community. And 2020 just simply is what it is. Um, there's a lot uh, that will prevent um, legislation, but the truth is that, uh, like any good student of policy, I was looking for an open window. And Representative Kelly Flood's decision to retire after more than a decade of service to the 75th created an opening. Uh, I've always been interested in the legislature, but even when I was going through Emerge, I said, you know, there's no way I would primary Kelly Flood or Reggie Thomas. I love them. <laughs> I want yeah. them to do this as long as they want to do this. And it was very surprising to a lot of people when Representative Flood decided to retire. So I wanted to seize that opportunity. And as one of my friends said when I made my announcement, if anybody should have the opportunity to try and change the world, it should be you. And I felt that that was a huge compliment. I mean, no one said anything nicer to me before or after when she chose to say that. Uh, but it's true. That's what I want to do in the legislature, whether it's incremental and one millimeter at a time in the right direction toward progress. Uh, I know that the ideas I have, the strength I have and the courage I have will allow us to move Kentucky forward. 
Absolutely. That's great to hear. Uh, and service is, is such an important component. I mean, they call it public service, right? And that's that's kind of what it should be. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm always interested in this question as well. You know, given that just about everybody that's running for this office knows the realities of what they're facing, you know, what, what, what defines success for you? And you mentioned, you know, you want to make progress, whether it's one millimeter or, uh, you know, several feet at a time. Um, but, you know, I've also we have also had lots and lots of conversations on air and off air with people that are serving there facing a lot of frustrations right now. So kind of what what is it that would make the, the, the trip up there doing it, you know, every day uh, of the week for, for, you know, four or five months at a time? Uh, what would make you feel like you're actually making a difference that you're making, you know, just that millimeter of, of progress forward? Well, for me, success in the legislature is going to boil down to about three things. The first and the most obvious is passing helpful legislation. It, it won't happen without bipartisan work. With the supermajority that the Republicans have, um, there's no way that we're going to strong arm anything uh, through that doesn't have bipartisan support. And so finding a way to work across the aisle that will yield a public benefit, to me, is the first measure of success. The second is providing a buffer against and information about regressive policies that are being presented that would set Kentucky back. So that means speaking up when policies are being proposed, uh, making sure that good information is being provided along with the rhetoric. And then finally, uh, most importantly, perhaps, it's not allowing progressive thinkers and voices to be silenced in Frankfurt. Even if we don't win, have we been heard? And one of the things I can do, even if I can't guarantee a win, so to speak, is I can promise to speak up when it's necessary. So to me, those are the three things that will define success in Frankfurt, knowing that we aren't going to be able to pass all the laws and legislation we would hope. I like that. You have a, a three-point plan there. <laughs> All right, let's talk about your district a little bit. So the 75th did change a little bit after redistricting, losing a lot of the downtown precincts, but it wasn't changed as completely as some of the state's other urban districts. So <laughs> Kelly Flood, who represented the 75th, and then Kathy Stein before her used to call the 75th district the conscious of the house. Do you think that that still holds true after redistricting? And what does that phrase mean to you? Absolutely. Um, you're exactly right uh, that the 75th did change uh, subtly, but on some level significantly as well. Um, your listeners are probably aware, although they might not be, that Kelly Flood was actually redistricted out of this district. And mm. had she chosen to stay, she would have had to face another legislator and a, a Democrat in the primary. So, the legislature was clearly on a mission in their redistricting, and Kelly, sadly, was going to be one of those targets, just like many of our other Lexington legislators and Louisville legislators. Uh, but I love the idea of being the conscience of the House. I think that's a great turn of phrase. Um, and I, I think, yes, uh, the 75th district is still going to be the conscience of the House. And what that means to me is ensuring that the General Assembly doesn't forget how legislation will affect vulnerable and marginalized populations. So not allowing what's good for the majority to trump what's good for uh, people who are parts of more specialized or smaller populations, whether that's 
families who have someone who has a disability or families from a different racial or ethnic background or low-income families. Um, I will always be using my social work background to think about how these policies are going to impact uh, different populations and ensuring that that never is lost in the, the debate, that it's always brought to the attention so that there is a conscience in the house. Yeah, no, that that's great. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I always loved I, I actually got to vote for Kelly Flood the first time she ever ran for the 75th House District. The, o- the only two people I voted for uh, who are in the House currently are, are Kelly Flood and Mary Lou Marzian, who are both uh, redistricted out of their districts. Uh, so that's a the bad sign. I think it's it's me. I'm the common denominator. There. So, uh <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, we also wanted to ask you about about your faith. So you, you're running a campaign that really centers your faith. Uh, and, and, you know, you've served in many capacities at your church, and you even named the law firm that you helped to found after a book of the Bible. Jasmine has a tattoo for the same verse, so that's that's fun. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah but, you know, um, tell us what your faith means to you and how you expect your progressive views on faith uh, will mesh with, with uh, Frankfurt. You know, there's lots of Christians, lots of ministers um, in Frankfurt who may not share all of your values. So how do you use your faith to kind of come to a common uh, understanding or, or is that even possible? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, the first observation I want to make is that um, my campaign really only centered my faith to the extent that it's a part of who I am. Um, and perhaps in this day and age, it's not popular um, to advertise that you're a Christian. And that's probably because of the uh, weaponization of Christian faith by the right. Uh, my faith is one of many lenses that I apply uh, to every aspect of the day-to-day life and how I understand the world. Um, I grew up in an evangelical church and I left that in college because it really wasn't a fit for me. I didn't rejoin a church until I was in my mid-30s, and I couldn't join any church until I found one that was progressive enough and shared my values that I had gained from the time I was 17 and graduating high school until I was in my mid-30s and really looking for a church home again. Um, I ended up in a Disciples of Christ Church. Um, I think that is very significant to me personally. Uh, It's interesting to note that's also what Governor Bashir's church is, is the Disciples of Christ Church. And one of the reasons that that faith background appeals to me is that it captures a lot of the original teachings I got from evangelicalism about the Bible, but it does so in a way that doesn't diminish the personhood of women. It doesn't diminish the personhood of LGBTQ people. It allows everyone to participate as they are without judgment. And that was really the only kind of church I could get behind. Um, My husband and I went there together for the first time. And on that Sunday, we observed two things right away. One was that there were several families that had two same-sex parents. And I just loved seeing lesbian moms and gay dads and just the whole thing with absolutely no judgment from anybody. They were just part of the church. The second thing is that our um, second-in-command minister is a woman. 
So for me, having grown up in the evangelical tradition, it was unusual to see a woman preach or pray or really do anything in a leadership role. So when I found a church that didn't reject people for who they were and instead was preaching that we should love all of God's creation, including each person just as they are, that was the kind of thing I could wrap my head around. So that does mean that I won't necessarily think just the same as a lot of the people who are loudly claiming Christian values in Frankfurt. But I think there are some places to find common ground through values. In fact, that's one of the things I really admire about Governor Bashir is his messaging is always values-based because while we might not agree on the rhetoric, we really do share a lot of common values about community and dignity and patriotism. Um, it's one of the things I really hate to see that the right has tried to own patriotism and Christianity, like they have some kind of um, monopoly on those concepts when they are just as valuable to the left as they are to the right. So when I think about trying to negotiate and relate to people whose worldview is also Christian by their definition, but not at all aligned with my worldview, I'm going to do exactly what the governor's been modeling, which is look for common values. Okay, what can we agree about? You know, stability of families. Hopefully, no matter what part of the spectrum you fall on, you're going to agree we need to stabilize our families. Things like that. And I won't be afraid to look someone squarely in the face and tell them, you know, I hear what you're saying and you've given a Bible verse to support your position, but isn't there also a, an admonition from Jesus that says, judge not lest ye be judged? And so maybe instead of condemning one another and calling names, we really ought to just come back to why we're here today, which is to find a way forward and try to do some redirection um, using things that will appeal to them. So if they're going to mobilize scripture, uh, I'm not afraid to do it right back at them. Yeah, I think... Bashir's values-based messaging has has been pretty popular with voters, um, but not so much with, I guess, the more conservative wing. Um, but I think in the legislature, like, there definitely are even very conservative legislators that do share some of those same values, you know, in eastern Kentucky, uh, members of the Mountain Caucus that support protecting workers and protecting benefits for people and oh, things absolutely. like that. So hopefully you'll be able to find some of that common ground. As election season picks up, um, candidates are starting to, you know, hone in on the issues that are going to guide their campaign. So um, you don't have a Republican opponent, but what issues would you bring to the doors of the folks in the 75th um, while campaigning? Well, um, we did a lot of door knocking through the primary, and we're going to continue knocking doors even though I'm unopposed. I'm mm -hmm. new to politics, and so a lot of folks have never heard of me, and I really think that's an asset. I'm, frankly, I'm kind of tired of seeing the same names and the generational stuff popping up in our politics. It's great to have fresh faces. Um, and so I want to make sure that people know that not only am I their neighbor, but they can reach me and how they can reach me. So as we've been going door to door and meeting new people, there are three main issues that I talk about, and all three of them are really centered in my 
my work experience as a social worker and as an attorney. Uh, as you mentioned at the very top of the show, I'm really passionate about affordable housing. Uh, and this is a moment when we can't ignore affordable housing. Yeah. We've ignored it to our folly for the last 20 years while I've been screaming about it. <laughs> and here we are now. Mm -hmm. uh, this is particularly important in the 75th district. Um, the 75th includes campus areas. Campus areas often have outrageously inflated rates uh, for rent, and that is just as true today, if not more so. So we have that influence. And then, of course, uh, the 75th also includes a lot of what are considered to be Lexington's starter homes. The starter homes in Lexington have gone up in value by about 75% in the last five years, mm -hmm. to the point where they're not affordable. Um, my husband and I are both very fortunate to be attorneys, but we're public interest attorneys, so we don't earn a ton of money. We could not buy this house now. Yeah. Uh, this, the same house that we bought five years ago, we could not afford to buy it today. And when I think about folks who don't have these kinds of privileges and how they're going to be able to start creating generational wealth, that's usually done through home ownership. If they can't own a home because they're too expensive, then our, you know, the, the cave between haves and haves not, have nots will only grow. So we really need to do something about affordable housing. I mean, beyond growing wealth and, you know, that kind of thing, how do you expect a family to get their student to school on time and with, a you know, their headset to learn if they just woke up in their car that morning? You know, um, mm -hmm. the, the legislature fails to recognize the precarious nature of the existence of so many of our neighbors. And a lot of the folks in the 75th district, sadly, are one paycheck away from being in utter crisis. So we cannot afford to ignore the housing crisis. Uh, the second issue I've been talking about with people is affordable and accessible health care. Um, that's popular all over the country to talk about, but it's important to the 75th district because just as affordable housing keeps families stable, so does access to medical care. If you're so sick you can't go to work, then everything else is going to fall apart. If you're having to pay an extra $300 a month for your rent, but you also have to pay $400 a month for medication, well, one of those isn't going to get paid for. So we really can't afford to ignore healthcare either. The last issue I've been talking about with the voters in the 75th is public education. I thought that the charter school bill that passed through the legislature last year was a travesty. I consider myself really fortunate to have been educated by the Fayette County Public Schools. They did a great job of teaching me the things I needed to go into the world. I'm really just impressed with the quality of um, the educators who have been willing to serve in that role, even though it's not um, glorified, it's not highly remunerative. Um, and I'm shocked that our solution for the raging gun violence crisis would be to arm teachers. I, I could never wrap my head around that proposal and would never vote for such a thing because educators are almost like nurses or doctors. They are there to enhance and help 
and serve their students. And it would be like asking a doctor uh, to put a Band-Aid onto a person who's hemorrhaging is what it is to ask a teacher to protect their students by shooting someone. Takes the words out of my mouth because it's such a stunning proposal and just so out of step with reality. Our public schools need our help urgently. One of the ways that Kentucky will succeed going into the future is by making sure that our students are properly educated in a good environment. And as social services are now provided by schools at a greater and greater rate, we don't need to be cutting their funding. Instead of sending more school resource officers in with guns, we ought to be sending more social workers into schools. Um, rather than cutting the budget and spreading it across um, new for-profit entities like charter schools, we ought to be increasing the budget and keeping it all in the public schools. All three of these things really resonate for the people of the 75th district um, because they are watching their rents go up. They're watching the cost of their health care go up. And they are seeing the public schools, which they've been proud to send their children to, become a place that they don't even recognize. We have to protect all three of these things because they're the fundamentals of what makes life doable. If you don't have health, if you don't have home, if you don't have education, nothing else is really possible. Those three fundamentals are just too important to ignore. And so they're the ones that I have been sharing with my constituents and they seem to be really important to them as well. Yeah, I think those are definitely three important issues. I know as a fellow public interest lawyer, I could not buy my house today and got really lucky um, of the timing of when I got it. And then I think that you know, having these discussions about education are, are so important right now. We're on the heels of another tragic school shooting. And so I think that that's something that people are, are willing to talk about. And we, we often like call on teachers to solve like all of these problems, to be social workers, to be law enforcement. Um, and we definitely need to be talking about issues like that. Democrats on the state level, though, have, they've really honed in on, you know, getting medical marijuana and sports gambling passed and then um, also expansion of civil rights and criminal justice reform issues as major elements of their agenda. And, you know, you live in a, a more Democratic district, but, you know, what do you think? Do you think that those are the right issues for Democrats statewide to be focusing on? Or are there any other issues uh, you think the party needs to uh, be putting their focus on and campaigning? Well, I think that the reason those are the issues that are in focus is because those are winnable issues. And it's real hard to stay on the team um, that keeps losing. <laughs> and so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if Democrats hope to maintain any kind of support going forward, we have to win some stuff. And I think mer medical marijuana is a great idea. Um, in fact, I would personally go to full legalization. I believe in automatic expungement for people with previous convictions relating to marijuana. But if, as I said before, one millimeter at a time is all I get, then let's win on the medical marijuana issue because there are lots of children and adults who need this as a treatment. Uh, it can be properly regulated to satisfy people who don't agree with legalization. And if it's 
the thing that allows a glaucoma patient to have a better quality of life, if it's the thing that gives an appetite back to a cancer patient, then we should be doing that. If it's the thing that stops seizures of a child who otherwise isn't going to have a normal life, then why are we preventing him or her from getting access? So as far as legalization of uh, marijuana, I would go further than medical marijuana if I got to choose. However, um, We'll take one millimeter of a win at a time. Sports gambling, uh, you know, if I'm being just totally blunt, I don't care. <laughs> um, however, lots of people do. And as I've done door-to-door knocking, it has come up a little bit. Uh, as I've called potential donors, it comes up a lot more. So what that tells me is among people who have disposable income, that's a real hot ticket item. And so if that's a win, then maybe we go ahead and take the win. I know it will shore up some of our industries that are struggling or could be struggling as time goes on. And I'm not opposed to it. I just don't really have a a horse in the race, so to speak. Um, and then you mentioned civil rights reform. That I think is very exciting and encouraging. And I would love to see that, although I'm not sure if that's as winnable as some of the other policies um, that you've mentioned. I, one of the things we've kind of seen in Frankfurt is, you know, there is like the medical marijuana bill, but then there's also like the Let's Grow bill that Rachel Roberts and Morgan McGarvey were very much pushing, which is a much more progressive legalization with a structure for expungement of criminal records and all that, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, and, and with a lot of issues, it's like, here's the thing we think might actually get some votes, get some Republicans peeled off on it. And then also here's what we really would like to do. And, and that kind of leads us to the next question. Um, you know, so I want to talk about it specifically in the frame of affordable housing. So you, you live in the 75th. It's an, we've talked about the political nature of it, but also it's a very urban district and, and the way way that housing works in an area like the 75th is significantly different than the way housing works in a lot of other districts, especially rural and suburban districts, which isn't to say they don't have their own affordable housing issues, but the ways in which those issues work uh, are very different. And you have constituents or you're going to have constituents that have significant problems and you're having to bring those constituent problems to the leadership of a party that you're not a part of. So I'm very interested to hear what your strategy is around ha uh, you know, having those discussions, making progress on those issues, even though uh, not only are they opposed to you because you're of a different party from them, have a different ideology from them, but also are coming just from a completely different frame, a completely different set of way of thinking about issues like this that maybe they're not totally familiar with because they've never lived in a place like the 75th district. Yes, absolutely. So when I think about how to legislate in um, what might be described as an adversarial setting, um, I'm really thinking first about listening, not only to my constituents, but to my fellow legislators, because everyone hopefully is trying to communicate a message about what's important to them. So I'm going to start by listening. Then, of course, we have to work across the aisle. And I think the way that that's going to be done is going to be a combination of matching values that we share and also appealing to values that maybe are not the same as my values. So in the scheme of uh, housing, so thinking about affordable housing, for example, it might be more appealing to someone who's more business-minded for me to talk about um, opportunity costs and missed uh, earnings that relate to being unhoused, uh, how a lack of housing affects our state GDP. Um, 
just finding different frames to present the same information that will allow the person who's on the other side of the aisle or the other side of the table to appreciate the merits of this proposal that I'll be making. So I make the proposal, but just because the reasons to me are dignity and worth of the person and family stability, I know that those may not be the right messages for um, Republican lawmakers. And so I will be talking to them about how our communities are financially affected by homelessness, how um, our schools are affected by homelessness, and the costs that go um, to the McKinney-Vento, um, for those people who don't know what that is, when students move because they're homeless, they get to stay in their home school, and then the school system has to find a way to get them to their old school. That's expensive. You know, if a family moves all the way across town, then we have to find a bus to get one student or a couple students across town. So wouldn't it be better if we just stabilized the family where they were and didn't force them to move? So I think it's a lot about messaging, whether it's common threads that we all share or finding different frameworks in which we can present a, a progressive plan, but appealing to the things that are expressed to be important by our other side. Um, It'll be a lot about listening and about conversing. Yeah, I, that's definitely how I think about talking to other people about criminal justice reform, too. Like, instead of what I would want to say about it, like, oh, we need to think about, like, the cost of incarcerating people. And it's it's about judicial discretion and, and things like that. So um, knowing knowing your audience is definitely very important, I think. So last but not least, tell us how people can learn about you and get involved in your campaign. Well, um, the most up-to-date information is going to be found on the campaign Facebook page. Uh, you can message the Facebook page or Instagram to connect directly with me. I'm still the person that checks those messages. So you will find a quick response from um, Lindsay Burke herself. <laughs> and um, of course, I've also got lindsayburke.com. Um, through the summer, I'm going to be doing everything I can to support Sherilyn Stevenson's re-election campaign. So people in the 88th district will see a lot of me. Uh, but then through the fall, I'll be back to knocking doors here in the 75th. Um, I would love to have help with canvassing or attending events. Um, all of the information about those things will be on the Facebook page. Awesome. Well, it's been a great discussion. Thank you so much for joining us, Lindsay Burke. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to meet you all, and I appreciate you having me on the show. Absolutely. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKWAPod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Demcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>